Welcome to episode 1633 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. Hello. Tell me if this strikes you as curious at all. I was reading the TikTok that Jason Stark wrote about Dave Dombrowski's hiring by the Phillies. And in there, he explained why Dombrowski went away from his commitment to work for the Nashville committee that was trying to put a baseball team in that city. So here is what he wrote, and he's talking about a conversation that Phillies owner John Middleton had with Dombrowski. It was like the third call where they were trying to get Dombrowski to come work for them. So Stark writes, Dombrowski and Middleton wound up speaking for more than an hour. They'd known each other for years, but they'd never had a conversation like this. Among the topics was this game changer. Dave, Middleton said, frankly, I don't think expansion is going to happen for a long time. Just the day before, in one of his periodic conversations with the commissioner's office about the situation in Nashville, Dombrowski had heard a similar take. It got him thinking. Middleton suggested he reach out to the commissioner's office again and get as much information as he could. So Dombrowski put in another call to his friends at MLB. For the third time in 24 hours, he heard the same message. Nashville was a great city, he was told, and it was high on MLB's list. But in part because of COVID-19, it would be years before the league was ready to expand. And there was no scenario in which any club would be moving there or anywhere anytime soon. So one would think that MLB might be eager to expand. There's always yeah. a lot of conversation about this. It's been a very long time. Obviously, it's been more than two decades since the last expansion. That's the longest MLB has gone without expanding since expansion started. And you might think that once the pandemic is over, which we hope will happen at some point, that MLB would be even more eager to expand in order to get the franchise fees that the new owners would have to pay in and split among the other teams. There's a precedent for that. After the owners were forced to pay penalties for colluding, they were more interested in expansion. It seems like partly as a result of that. So... Why do you think it is, if you buy this, if it's not that there was some kind of conspiracy to get Dombrowski to work for the Phillies and Middleton called everyone and said, hey, tell Dave we're not expanding so that I can hire him. Like, Unless that's what was happening here, why do you think this would be the case? I wonder if, you know, in addition to just the difficulty of doing anything on that large of a scale in the midst of a pandemic, even though, as you said, we hopefully will see it end someday. If there's just perhaps a an internal understanding at the league that, you know, we're about to enter a very challenging sort of budget time for mm-hmm. states and municipalities and s- expansion necessarily comes with a conversation about where an expansion team is going to play and perhaps they are just cognizant of the fact that cities are going to need to do other stuff with their money for a little while right that the idea that you might spend to put a a major league caliber park in Nashville or Portland is just not going to be a budgetary priority as those places try to, you know, work their way out of the economic, mm-hmm. you know, downturn that is likely to follow um, the pandemic and that they will hopefully be spending 
municipal monies on the community and the needs of the community as it tries to recover rather than, Mm -hmm. you know, a place for, for baseball to be played. But I agree with you that it's curious if only because the existing owners of teams have both an incentive in the form of those those franchise fees and then a, a compelling argument about how lucrative ownership can be. Mm-hmm. And so it is it is kind of surprising because you would think that they would be sort of on the hunt for yeah. a well-funded ownership group or two to to join the ranks. I don't want to like galaxy brain it and say like <laughs> that if they are able to successfully expand in the midst of a pandemic with with franchise fees, it would likely be quite lucrative that it perhaps undermines their argument about how, you know, bad a business it is to be in baseball. That seems a little, I mean, that does seem like the kind of thing that they would try, but also I think the possibility of sort of bringing more money into the coffers would ultimately outweigh that that desire. So yeah, it is kind of a funny thing to say. It is like a, a refreshing thing to hear that like we might want to do other stuff with limited resources right now uh, at the state and local level because mm-hmm. we should do that instead of build ballparks. <laughs> yeah. Somehow I doubt that's the motivation. <laughs> yeah, I, I doubt it's, you know what, we will put the public before MLB right now and yeah. uh, we don't want anyone to fund our ballparks or give us any sweetheart deals or anything because uh, there are so many more important causes that that money could go to. Yeah, I, I kind of doubt that that's it. So maybe there's some other angle here, although you're right, maybe they are less likely to get a great deal from somewhere with all the other demands on the budget these days. But it is surprising because if you had asked me, I would have said that if anything, this would make expansion more likely. And I already thought it was fairly likely in the not too distant future. You know, once the dust settles, once it's safe to go to games again, right. it seems like a way to recoup the either losses or losses of potential profits that they have experienced this year would be to expand and and it seems like there are good competitive reasons and you know non-economic reasons to do that as well so we'll see if this actually turns out to be the case or if Dombrowski was hoodwinked or something here I don't know but but yeah undermining their own economic arguments is not something owners really hesitate to do in a lot of cases so I kind of think that's given them a lot of credit too so there must be some angle here and There's also the fact that Adam Silver, the NBA commissioner, seemed to indicate that the NBA is looking at expansion more seriously now. He came up with some comments this week and he said the pandemic has caused us to maybe dust off some of the analyses on the economic and competitive impacts of expansion. We've been putting a little bit more time into it than we were pre-pandemic. So you'd think what would apply to the NBA would also apply to MLB. So sort of surprising. But we'll see if this actually ends up being the case. I don't have this handy, and so I I would need to go back and sort of cross-reference the years of expansion, you know, for, you know, the D-backs and the Rays and what have you. But I am curious if sort of how those historically have been timed relative to new collective bargaining agreements mm. and perhaps the the reality of needing to both figure out how baseball is going to be played next year and then how it will be played in sort of a broader, more philosophical sense in the years to come is is just one thing too many. I don't know how those have sort of historically gamed out. Yeah. So it could right. be that it's, you know, it, it's just a thing that, 
we don't typically see in conjunction with a pending CBA negotiation because you want to, perhaps as a new owner, have a good understanding of what the labor conditions of the sport are going to be before you agree to enter into it as an owner. I don't know. The other thing is that it seems like current owners have some incentive for people to think that there is a realistic possibility that there might be new teams or teams moving to different markets at least, right? right? Because they always like to dangle that over local governments and say, oh, you better give us what we want or we're out of here and here's this other market that wants us and is uh, ready to welcome us with open arms. So. I guess this is not really public messaging. It's not like Rob Manfred and John Middleton are coming out publicly and saying there's not going to be expansion, at least that I've seen. So this was a private conversation that I guess Dombrowski maybe is mentioning to Stark, and maybe this is not really a message that MLB or owners want out there in a larger sense. So anyway, kind of surprising, kind of confounding, but we shall see. Anything else you want to bring up before we get to our topic today? Ben, I have a... I have a, a controversial take and okay. I need I need your opinion of it because look, sometimes I think I do a really good job being like that human person looks like this other human person. And yeah. sometimes I have said this human person looks like this other human person. And even though I am right, I have been met with derision and <laughs> skepticism. Yeah. And so I need your your feedback on this. Okay. So we, we don't have to go into the ins and outs of the former Bloomberg reporter who seems to have thrown her <laughs> life away in order to be in love with Martin Screlly, better known yes. as Pharma Bro. Mm-hmm. We don't have time, Ben. To, <laughs> Everyone's read it, I think. <laughs> yeah, we don't have time to either engage with the, the facts of the, the case or the, the way they were presented in that piece. That is a different conversation. Mm-hmm. But it did prompt Jeff Passan to tweet, I've been sharing this anecdote for a story, but screw it. Too good to squirrel away. Someone suggested Ray's pitcher, Tyler Glasnow, try to get angry before starts. To do this, he would look at pictures of one person. He pulled out his phone and showed me. It was Martin Screlly. And then Passan follows that up by saying, update, Tyler Glasnow has moved on to other methods of pregame motivation, as athletes often do, (laughs) making sure to shake up their routines when they hit a funk. But he still thinks Martin Screlly is a turd. And I think it's the official editorial policy of Effectively Wild and Fangraphs, candidly, that Martin Screlly is indeed a turd. Yep, fine with that. Yeah, it, it struck me as a little bit funny because I think the following. I think that if you were to make Martin Screlly 40 or 50% more attractive than he is, and and he is noted as having just a, a highly punchable face, which <laughs> we don't encourage face punching, but we will acknowledge that this is a, a punchable face. Mm-hmm. And you were to dial Tyler Glasnow down, say... Mm-hmm. 30 or 40%. And yeah. then you were to take those individuals' composite, say, in the form of an actor, to try to have <laughs> one person play both Martin Screlly and Tyler Glasnow. I submit that that person is Cillian Murphy. <laughs> <laughs> and so it is a funny bit of business because he is the like less and more attractive version of both of these human beings. <laughs> yeah. I so. have not agreed with all of your, your <laughs> takes on <laughs> resemblances, but I can get on board with this one. I definitely see that. I think that it is perhaps Cillian Murphy specifically as the Scarecrow, and not uh-huh. as the Scarecrow with the mask on, but as the, the 
psychologist who became the scarecrow uh, with the glasses. I'm just saying it's it's a disturbing it's a disturbing realization, and you can't unsee it. And both because I want to be right, and mm-hmm. because I want to not be alone in my disturbed state, I I needed to share it with you and all of our listeners. So yeah, that's my that's my right only here. thing. Yeah. Yeah, Shkreli looks a little bit to me like Jimmy Simpson, the actor from House of Cards and Date Night and Westworld. There's maybe more of a resemblance there, but I see how if you oh, blended yeah. if you blended Shkreli and Glasnow, you would kind of end up with Murphy. And you end up with Murphy. Yeah, I think that's right. And we have we should do one of those like face blend things with the apps and yeah. see how close it actually comes out to test your theory here. But yeah, Glasnow, good looking guy. Straight Striking fellow, long flowing locks. I I remember when I was watching playoff games and he was shown on the bench from time to time. My wife was like, who is this male model on the race who is uh, (laughs) showing up on my screen here? So, yeah, definitely has Hollywood-like looks. I have long maintained that, and I think that this is not going to surprise anyone based on the analysis that I just did, the very rigorous scientific analysis, that I have thought him to be more objectively attractive than Cillian Murphy, who has kind of a creepy vibe, in part because of the roles that he has played. (laughs) And so I also appreciate this opportunity to say, like, hey, like, be nice to Tyler Glasnow. He is better looking than this Hollywood man in this (laughs) one woman's opinion. So there you Mm -hmm. go. Yep. Yeah, I always feel sorry for actors who have to play creepy people all the time. And yeah. it's I guess it could be a chicken and egg thing. Do they have a creepy vibe and then they play creepy people? Or do they play creepy people and then people assume they have a creepy vibe? Maybe it's a little bit of both. Yeah. Even if they have a creepy vibe, it doesn't mean they actually are creepy. But people get typecast in that kind of role. And I guess it can be a lucrative career. But also people know you from <laughs> the awful characters you have played. Yeah, I mean, they're both very talented in their own ways. But mm-hmm. Tyler Glass now does not strike me as creepy. Also, I appreciate this anecdote from Jeff because so often when we hear anecdotes about athletes, we like them less, and this makes me like him more. <laughs> yeah, right. All right. I guess we will not have to read an L magazine feature on Tyler Glass now. <laughs> but, but I'd be interested in seeing the fashion shoot that went with it if uh, if that ever does arise. So many weird things about that story, Ben. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so our topic today, I don't know if we'll have time for maybe an email or a stat blast at the end, but wanted to continue an effectively wild tradition here that Sam started in writing and in podcast form, and that dates back to what Sam always called the Krasniks, the annual survey at ESPN by Jerry Krasnick of baseball people, baseball insiders, usually at the start of the offseason. Krasnick would ask them all the most pressing questions from that offseason, and I think Sam found it fascinating, A, because it's a window into what baseball bigwigs think, but also he found it fascinating because they're often very wrong. Like, it doesn't seem like they're any better at actually predicting things because Krasnick would often ask, like, concrete questions. What do you think will happen? What is more likely to happen? What kind of deal will this guy get? Where will he sign? That sort of thing. Things that, in some cases, at least you can test and see how accurate it was in a, a fairly short time frame. And so Sam did a few analyses at Baseball Prospectus looking back to see how successful were they? Did they actually 
actually know what they were talking about. And I think for the most part, he basically found it really wasn't much better than a coin flip, which is sort of interesting. So Jerry now works for the Players Association. So the Krasniks have been retired, but ESPN's Jesse Rogers has picked up the mantle and he is doing this now. So we did the inaugural version of the Rogerses last year, and I didn't actually think there was going to be one this year. It's kind of late, but it just happened this week. Jesse posted his survey and the responses, and as he pointed out, it's later than usual, but also like not a lot has happened. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the same questions that he would have asked a month ago still apply. Yeah, he didn't miss anything big. Yeah. All right. So the number of people surveyed and the, the language that is used to describe who the people are always changes. This year, it's 20 MLB team executives and baseball insiders. But in the spirit of Sam looking back on the results, I, I figured we could just briefly recap what the insiders said last year and how right or wrong they were. So last year, it was 15 team executives and baseball insiders published in late November. So just going over the answers here, the first question was, which team will make the biggest splash of the offseason? And the responses were Angels, seven people, Padres, two, Rangers, two, White Sox, two, Cubs, one, Yankees, one. Who would you say did make the biggest splash of last offseason? I guess I'd probably go with the Yankees, right? Because they signed Garrett Cole. Yeah, the Angels were somewhat splashy. They got Rendon, Rendon. but they sort of missed out on the big pitcher that they yeah. were trying to go after. So, so I would probably go with the Yankees from like a, a single free agent signing impact perspective. And then the, I guess we have to mention the Reds because of the moves that they made as like the actual... Uh, it just bumps me out. We <laughs> yeah. ended up with that. But anyway, yeah, I would say the Yankees from a single point of signing perspective, and then probably the Reds would be mm -hmm. my answer. Yeah. And the Padres, I don't know if it was a disappointing offseason, like they did what they had to do. They were a great team, but I guess they didn't make the sort of splash that they made in the previous winters with Hosmer and with Machado. They signed Drew Pomeranz, they acquired Tommy Pham, they made some other moves, but they didn't blow everyone out of the water. So I guess if we were assessing whether the executives were right, I don't know. They weren't way off on this one, but it wasn't clear that the Angels made the biggest splash or, or that the Padres did. So, yeah. All right. And uh, moving on to other questions that we can actually assess, because some of these are more long-term oriented. But here's one. Which of these three players is most likely to start next season with a new team? Mookie Betts, Francisco Lindor, or Chris Bryant? The responses to this were Lindor, eight people. Bryant, seven people. Bets, zero people. <laughs> so <laughs> oh, that's a big wow. whiff. Wow. Yeah. Man, there's something so optimistic about that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, it's, an, it's a question that is absolutely pessimistic about the state of baseball. Um, <laughs> and I think that, you know, we'll, we will end up simply being a year late on Lindor. Mm -hmm. But there is something about about that that is funny given how once they decided they were going to move bets just how publicly and loudly they were willing to communicate that yeah, right i guess but just to backtrack one question we would be we would be remiss if we did not mention that that tommy fam deal also brought jake cronenworth to san yes, diego of course. Yeah. but it is funny that the most important aspect of that deal was the part that was sort of a throwaway that no one cared about at the time <laughs> yeah yeah it is funny, though, that that bets trade was just, like, so inconceivable that even the MLB insiders were like, Why no. would you do that? 
Yeah. And then they were like, well, we're really <laughs> excited about Alex Verdugo. Yeah. No one in the Boston front office talks like that to my knowledge, but <laughs> I've been watching Christmas movies, so I sound like a claymation something probably. <laughs> All right, the third question last year was, Anthony Rendon is the clear top hitter on this market. Where will he land and for how much? And the where will he land was Nationals 13 people, Rangers 1, Cardinals 1. And the money, the highest response was eight years, 280 million. Lowest was six years, 200. And the average was seven to 27. So the contract terms are close, yeah. I guess, because he was, what, 7 245. Five, yeah, yeah, okay. But uh, everyone sort of thought that the Nationals were the most likely, which, I mean, I guess you would have to say that they were the most likely, but they were, I guess, seemingly pretty convinced that he would go back there, and he did not. No one mentioned the Angels. They got the color of the uniform right. I guess that's true, yeah. Well, and same topic, number four, who is more likely to return to the Nats, Steven Strasburg or Rendon? Survey says Rendon 12, Strasburg 3. So way off on that one also. Yeah, whiffed there. Whiffed. (laughs) Yeah. And speaking of whiffs, number five, will Garrett Cole get a $300 million deal? Definitely no chance, or it'll be close but under. The responses were close but under, nine. No chance, six, definitely zero. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously, it was over. So, yeah, not the greatest track record here for the insiders. Yeah, I, you know, I can't fault them for thinking, given the the sort of past few markets that we had had, that the under was probably the safe choice, even if the the sort of top end of free agency has been relatively resilient to the downturn in salaries. But yeah, he got he got nine years and three twenty four and an opt out. Yeah, right. It wasn't even all that close. So, all right. And let's see a couple of the others, not really something we can judge right now. But this one, well, I guess number nine, which of these hitters will produce more over the length of their next contract? Didi Gregorius, Marcelo Zuna, or Nicholas Castellanos? And seven people said Castellanos, six said Ozuna, two said Gregorius. So, Ozuna had a great year, the best year. I guess if we're talking about over the length of their next contract, like <laughs> Ozuna had a one-year deal, Castellanos had a four-year deal, it still might be close <laughs> because yeah. Ozuna was so good. This is like this is a question that kind of asks people to consider how long the contract will be and how good they'll be over the term of that contract, and we can't really judge that with Castellanos yet, but yeah. I guess the fact that more people said Castellanos than Ozuna maybe means that Ozuna was a little bit underrated if you buy into his 2020. Yeah, or that people were just not sure what to make of his trend of having really good underlying metrics and peripherals and never quite producing as well right. as you would expect given those but yeah he had he had a hell of a season so mm-hmm. you know good job marcel yeah and not very good job by the baseball insiders last yeah. year yeah there was another of the second tier pitchers which of these free agent starters would you most want your team to sign this winter madison bumgarner zach wheeler or dallas keichel of course we can't close the book on those deals but Eight people said Wheeler, four said Bumgarner, two said Keichel. Yikes. <laughs> I guess three-way tie for one person. 
if you were to order those in terms of their 2020s or even just how they stack up going forward now, you would probably have to say Wheeler, Keuchel, Bumgarner. So yeah. they weren't way off. But uh, but on the ones that are kind of clear-cut cases, they definitely were not very prescient last time. <laughs> so no. we'll see if that can carry over to this year. So I will give you the question, and then you will tell me what you think the insiders will say. And if your opinion differs from what you think they'll say, you can tell me that too. So first question, which team will end up making the biggest splash of the offseason? Some of the same sort of questions here. So who do you think will be the survey respondent's uh, most popular pick? The Mets. Indeed. The Mets get 12 of the 20 votes here. The other teams on the list, Angels got four, Giants yeah. got two, White Sox got two. Sure. So That seems respectable. Yeah, there, there haven't been big splashes so far, but Mm-mm. I guess if you were going to give the splash to someone, the Mets are kind of the clubhouse leader, I suppose, but many splashes still to be made. Yeah, I think another name that I would offer if I had been asked this question is Toronto because they've yep. been tied to a number of a number of sort of the high-end free agents I think in a way that reflects an earnest desire on their part to improve mm-hmm. and you know I think that it must be very frustrating for front offices like the Mets and the Blue Jays and every other one and we we saw some of this when the Mets made the decision to sign McCann that I think because there are so few earnest and active buyers players are incentivized to wait some in search of a better deal. And so the teams that actually want to get going and and go about the business of signing guys are probably waiting around being like, but (laughs) how many millions more do we have to give you to just do it now? Mm -hmm. And we don't know when the season will start, which will come up with a a later (sighs) question in this survey. Uh, Next one, will Trevor Bauer sign for one year or take a multi-year deal? A multi-year deal. Would you care to guess the breakdown roughly? I would say 75% multi-year, 25% single-year deal. That is almost exactly spot on. Yeah, I promise four- I didn't look. I didn't look before. <laughs> okay. You told me not to look, and so I did not look. All right. 14 said multi-year deal, and 6 said one-year deal. So... That uh, sounds about right. I guess we talked about this a little earlier in the offseason. Normally, you would think someone coming off a Cy Young Award would obviously sign for a multi-year deal. It wouldn't even be a question with anyone else. But with Bauer, with all the noise he has made about going year to year, with the pandemic, with all of that, there's still some chance. But I would side with the crowd here, I suppose. Do you ever think about how much time we've spent talking about Trevor Bauer making noise? There will be more time spent on that to come, (laughs) I am sure. All right. Next question. Many in the game say DJ LeMahieu will return to the Yankees, and there's at least a chance JT Realmuto will end up back with the Phillies. So where will the other best hitter on the market, George Springer, end up? Toronto. Any other names you want to toss out there? The Mets. All right. Survey says Mets, actually the most popular choice. Sure. With, uh, 13 responses. Blue Jays second with cool. five and then Giants with two. Giants. I love the I love the emerging view of the Giants that this survey is suggesting. Yeah. Giants were a, a big splash candidate here, too. Big splash. I mean, it, 
I'm not going to make a home run joke. I'm going to refrain because it's an obvious joke and we're above such things. Okay. Next one, also familiar from last year's survey, who will get traded this offseason? Francisco Lindor, Chris Bryant, both or neither? I would imagine that the responses are overwhelmingly Lindor. And I would think that, mm, yeah, Lindor with a bullet, maybe, maybe a unanimous selection. Okay. And if you had to go for both versus neither? I guess both, just because I think the odds of Lindor getting moved are so high, mm-hmm. even though I I find the odds that Bryant ends up somewhere else at this point kind of low, at least uh, as an offseason deal, although I could see if he rebounds being a, a, hot, a hot deadline property. That's a terrible way to talk about a human <laughs> being. I have immediate regret, uh, but I could see him being, you know, the guy who headlines MLB.com as on the move, question mark. Uh, right. But so Lindor first and then both um, as the second most popular. You are right. Yeah, so Lindor had 11 of the 20, and then the other nine said both. So no one said neither. No one just said Bryant. So everyone seems to consider Lindor much more likely and possibility of both of those guys much more likely than neither of them. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Next one, who is the one player most likely to be overpaid this winter? So this is an open-ended question. Well, I guess it it requires us to consider what what the baseball person in this scenario considers overpaid to mean, like right. over how long of a time, mm-hmm. by what margin. This is tricky, and I will I will admit, Ben, to our listeners that you said, "Hey, think about this question in advance," and I did mm-hmm. that, and then. I really struggled to come up with an answer mm-hmm. because I kind of reject the overpaid premise. Like, I think it's kind of yishy. I guess that my answer would be, wow, it's really funny to look at our top 50 and see how many of these guys <laughs> ended up taking qualifying offers. <laughs> I'm trying really hard not to let my own answer cloud what I think baseball people would say in response to this. I'm yeah. going to say that baseball people might pick on Marcus Simeon. Mm, mm-hmm. Why do I think that? Probably his age. And yeah, I would imagine that Simeon is in there. And then I I imagine there are a couple of uh, Bauer skeptics among the, the baseball set, just given how up and down his performance has been and how open he has been with his substance experimentation. And so I, I'm going to lead with those two, perhaps. Mm-hmm. I guess Ozuna is probably in that mix too, just because I think there are a lot of people who are pretty skeptical of his uh, defense and he's not going to necessarily be able to DH quite as often as he did in 2020 because the NL might not have a DH. But mm-hmm. and the And the performance with the bat was so exceptional relative to some of his prior seasons. So I'm going to put those those three in, I guess, in the order that I named them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. It's uh, hard to exactly figure out what they mean or, or how to answer this question. Of course, whatever you get is what the market supported for you. Right. And, uh, you know, you could put it in team-friendly versus player-friendly terms, I suppose, or or do some kind of dollar-per-war breakdown of this. Yeah. I don't know, but we get the gist of, of what they're asking here. So no clear consensus, really, in the responses, so makes sense that no one really sprang to your mind immediately. So the responses are 
Liam Hendricks, three. Hmm. Alex Colome, three. Jose Quintana, two. James McCann, one. Trevor Bauer, one. Tommy Lestella, one. So there was uh, at least one Bauer skeptic here, but... Really, I guess it's just, I don't know, Hendricks. I guess people are thinking relievers are volatile and teams might overpay for closers or, or something like that. I guess yeah, that's the deal like, with Colomay, too. The scale of those deals is just likely yeah. to be so small in comparison to either a starter or any of the big-name position players that I'm surprised by that. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. And, 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 gotten a sense that there's going to be some huge Alex Colomay windfall or something. I mean, maybe it'll surprise me, but I think I actually took him in the offseason free agent contracts draft just because MLB trade rumors projected him for one year and six million. And I thought that was a little low and I don't know what they're basing that on, but even if that is low, which I, I hope it is for the sake of Alex Colomay, but also for the sake of my offseason free agents draft, <laughs> I don't know that he's going to get like some huge amount that right. is going to stand out as like, oh boy, they really fell for the Alex Colomay hype or something. So I don't know. I guess it's just relievers and maybe like the big ticket players on the market this winter. Yeah. Like maybe people just believe in them more than usual. Like, I don't know. They're they're not super old. Like everyone thinks Real Mudo is really good. Like Springer is good. There are some reasons to be skeptical about Bauer repeating that performance, but like he has been good before. It it's not like there's some total one year wonder there or like someone who's in his mid thirties and people are thinking, Oh, they're gonna give that guy an eight year deal and he's not gonna age well or something. So I don't know. It's not like the the richest crop of free agents, but I guess the ones who are there are fairly appealing players. So maybe that has something to do with it. I guess I should say if I'm going to to nitpick about Marcus Simeon's age, and I guess track record is probably more the the thing here given the offense. Mm-hmm. I have to know that George Springer is 31. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, George Springer is 31. He's gonna yeah. end up in a corner so soon. I think, mm. like in a really permanent way. So yeah, maybe people are are more sort of optimistic about this group for the reason you said. Maybe I I think that people are just generally more inclined to give runway to position players than pitchers, both from an injury perspective, and I think we have confidence in like their ability to age a little more gracefully Mm, so yeah i don't know it's just an odd Mm. it's an odd bunch yeah Mm. maybe they don't think anyone will be overpaid because (laughs) people won't be paid that much i I think that that's probably (laughs) the more realistic answer unfortunately all right next one two-parter do you think spring training will start on time and will baseball play 162 regular season games so this is really two different questions So I imagine that the answer to both of these questions was no, like the majority of people likely answered no. I think that spring training, I think spring training will start on time based on what the the league and players agree on. Like, I don't think that we will have a situation like this year where we had you know, pitchers and catchers reporting in February and a spring training in March and then a long delay, I imagine that we will have a sense fairly early of like whether or not they're actually going to uh, to 
to start on time and then stuff will get pushed back. Mm -hmm. But I doubt strongly we play 162 if only because ownership seems to already be sort of positioning itself to ask for a reduced schedule, you know, and there's also the reality that like the majority of people will not be vaccinated by the time those dates are ready to roll around. So I should be clear that like this is not purely the construct of ownership right there is a very real reason to delay (laughs) yeah (laughs) that has nothing to do with you know grift or greed it's just Mm -hmm. like the reality of us still being in the midst of a global pandemic so right yeah i would i would expect that people were pessimistic on both of these questions yeah and so the owners uh, were sort of posturing about maybe delaying the start of the season and the players association shot that down quickly which doesn't mean that that might not still happen there will just have to be some sort of negotiation right. because like as things stand there will be a 162 game season so if the owners want that to change they will have to convince the players to go along with that and, and have some kind of negotiation like they did this year which wasn't that fun for all of us so that's something to look forward to but With spring training, I could see them being more on the same page about delaying it or shortening it because just money-wise, like, players are not getting paid for spring training. Like, their salary is not contingent on it the way it is with regular season games. So if you were to shorten or cancel spring training, they would not have to prorate their salaries and... For owners, like there is an expense to staging spring training and playing those games. And so if you're not recouping those costs with fans in the stands, which look in March in Florida and Arizona, you know, whether there should be fans in the stands or not, like maybe there could be or would be. But I could see how if they don't think that those games would be well attended, And there's just kind of a pre-existing conversation about, well, do we actually need spring training that goes on this long in this day and age when players generally stay in pretty good shape year-round and they go to training facilities and maybe, you know, they haven't been working an off-season job and kind of letting themselves go and needing to play themselves back into shape the way that earlier generations of players did. So there was some talk about potentially shortening that anyway. Although, as we saw last year, you don't want to rush it too much because guys get hurt and pitchers need time to ramp up. And I'm sure that pitchers would definitely want some spring training just so that we don't see a repeat of last season where you start the year and then everyone suddenly has an elbow barking. Well, and I would imagine that in much the same way that the the major league season is in some amount of jeopardy, at least in the early going, that the minor league season faces similar issues. So you also might have an incentive to, even if you end up staggering major leaguers and minor leaguers, which I think there was some discussion of, you might have some incentive to sort of get the ball rolling so that you can get more of your minor leaguers who had a supremely strange season and many of whom were just doing at-home dev and didn't have the chance to really participate in organized activities at all to get them to the complexes so that you can start the the tune-up that those guys might need because apart from the guys who are at the alternate side and participated in fall instructional leagues or did any of the winter leagues which this is like not the point of this question but you can watch baseball in so many places right now and there are a lot of prospects that are playing baseball in international winter leagues to get reps so if you're hankering for both baseball and uh, a look at some of the prospects who you might have seen play minor league ball if there had been a normal year like go go watch lead on go watch 
the Australian Baseball League, which started last week, like you got you got some options. So go yeah. seek those out. But I think that there will also be a player dev aspect to this, which might not mean fans in the stands at all, right? But I think will also be a factor that teams consider as they're trying to sort out like what to do when. So Yeah, good point. Yeah. So I haven't actually said what the insider said. So They were pretty split on both of these questions. As for the start on time, the spring training start on time question, eight said yes, 12 said no. And as for the will we play 162 regular season games, split right down the middle, 10 yes, 10 no. So no one really knows (laughs) at this point, which uh, could be why this offseason is developing so slowly. But I guess... There's hope. There's still a chance that there will be a full season, it seems like, but people are far from confident about that. Yeah, geez. And the last question on the survey, is the universal DH here for good? Speaking of questions that are still unresolved at this late date. I imagine that this was also split 50-50. If only because here for good implies that we will have it in perpetuity starting in 2021. Right. And I think that it is conceivable to me that we will get like a last minute, hey, <laughs> yeah, you have a DH, congratulations. Wouldn't you have liked to sign Nelson Cruz or Marcelo Zuna? Whoops. Yeah. So I, I can see that happening, but I think that we will long-term definitely have the DH in both leagues. So, so actually people were pretty overwhelmingly convinced that the universal dh is here for good i guess they are free to interpret this question as they would and maybe some of them interpreted it as long term and not for 2021 but 18 said yes and only two said no so even though mlb put out the word that teams should prepare for next season as if there would be no dh in the national league It seems like most of these insiders are not actually acting as if that's the case, and and maybe that is just MLB trying to take a hard line in negotiations about other things, you know, expanded playoffs or roster sizes or other rules changes. So players generally want the DH. I don't think owners are really opposed to the DH either, but if they say, well, there's no DH, then you're starting from that position of of relative power in the negotiations and then you can give the players the concession of okay we will let you have a dh so that could be why they put it that way but it doesn't seem like it is swaying any of these insiders yeah i think that it'll be the sort of thing that we hear about like two weeks before the season starts and then you know everyone at fangrass gets to roll their eyes about how their positional power rankings are now 30 (laughs) teams long and we have to redo projections and stuff so yeah I hope it doesn't drag on quite that long because even if, as we said, it, it's not like the only or, or even really the primary thing that is slowing down the market, it's one of those things. Like yeah. <laughs> even just for Nelson Cruz and, and the other players in that boat who would be dedicated DHs or even just part-time DHs, like it would be nice to let them know and uh, let all the other teams know yes. how they should plan to do these things. So yeah, yes. it's par for the course over the last year of just kind of you know winging it just going by the seat of your pants which is sort of necessary in these circumstances but in this case like they should probably 
figure out the DH thing sometime soon. Yeah, it's it's not an optimal way to do business. It, it has very real effect, even if it is not the the only thing, as you said, stalling those markets on a couple of like very specific free agents markets. I know team people in the NL who are very frustrated by the fact that they don't have an answer on this question and would like to be able to build their rosters already. And then at like, you know, reason 1000 in the grand scheme of things when we consider the stakes is that it's not very nice to people who have to run websites that do projections. <laughs> yeah. So, but it's still a reason, even if it is not the reason that should carry the day. It's still mm-hmm. on the list. All right. So that is the latest edition of the Krasniks or the Rogerses or whatever we're calling them now. Always a fun exercise. So, Maybe we can end with an email or two. I I have a stat blast we could close with. But here's a question from Darren who says, This morning, John Heyman tweeted the following, Luis Castillo, as well as Sonny Gray, is being discussed in trades. Asks are appropriately high for young frontline starters. The Reds went for it last winter and were rewarded with a playoff spot, but the belt tightening this winter is clear. And the question from Darren Sonny Gray is 31 years old, and Luis Castillo just turned 28 years old this offseason. At a time when teams appear to be skewing younger overall, I was wondering what ages we should currently consider young by baseball Mm. standards. Where is the present-day cutoff for being referred to as young in the baseball sense, and is it different than what was considered to be young throughout baseball's past? As I thought about this more, I guess it's possible the term young could be used differently for pitchers versus hitters. I assume the average and median age of starting pitchers or all pitchers is a bit different than position players. So, Luis Castillo, Sonny Gray, young. (laughs) What is young? (laughs) (laughs) When you keep listening to new music. No, I would say that Luis Castillo is still young. We should say like both of these are young as like human beings. Yes. (laughs) Like Sonny Gray is a young man. I think that Sonny Gray is definitely a person who I always assume to be at least two or three years younger than he actually is because his first name is Sonny. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a name that I associate with youth and yes. vitality. Yep. So uh, there's that. But I wouldn't I wouldn't classify Sonny Gray as young, mm-hmm. although I wouldn't classify him as someone who I view as sort of in danger of immediate decline either. Mm-hmm. He sort of occupies that established veteran role for me which does not necessarily immediately reference his age but often means the same thing Mm -hmm. it's strange though because we do have a number of bright young stars in the game who are just genuinely very young like they are they are not yet able to like rent cars without penalty. Like Juan Soto is only twenty two. I know. <laughs> you remember how Juan Soto is only twenty two? It really like at some point it will cease to be mind boggling when I look at Juan Soto and see how old or, or how right. young he is. But I'm still not there, <laughs> even right. though we're like years into the Juan Soto age fun facts. And hey, did you know that Juan Soto is younger than this guy you think of as being young? Still, really has not worn off. Like just. Right. Because he is so incredibly precocious and mature as a hitter 
I think that makes it even more shocking when you look and you see that, oh, this guy who is basically Ted Williams and has that sort of plate approach is as young as he is and like shows up on lists where it's like just him and Ted Williams on like, you know, walks or on base percentage at, at these sorts of ages or early seasons. So it's incredibly impressive. Yeah, like Ronald Acuna, still young. He's yep. he's 23. Oh, Ronald Acuna's birthday was on December 18th. Happy oh. belated birthday, Ronald Acuna. Yeah. So like Ronald Acuna, still young. I think that like 25, 26 is sort of the the range that we're talking about, right? And then there's this, this but I guess Luis Castillo is 28 and I said right. he was young. So uh, maybe 28 is the upper bound because once you turn... Once you're 29, you're basically 30, (laughs) (laughs) Uh right? And 30 still has this, is still sort of entrenched in our minds as the point at which we start looking for age-related decline and like think that we are likely to start seeing things that we would dismiss as temporary and the results of injury or inexperience or what have you in a young player start to be facts of a person's biography as a player that might linger with them, right? Like, oh, now they're, they're, you know, they're starting to get to that age where like they get hurt and they stay a little hurt for a long time. Right. (laughs) Or, you know, they, they've gotten to the point as a pitcher where the velocity is just going to decline and it's going to continue to decline and we don't expect it to, to rebound. So I think that like maybe 28 is the 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 point at which we're like young and then after that you're like you're almost 30 mm-hmm. and and then you're uh then you're basically retired <laughs> yeah so. Then you're like us you're uh decrepit and past your prime i guess <laughs> so i don't think there's a, a huge difference in pitcher and hitter average ages like if you look at the average batting ages and pitching ages on baseball reference some years there's basically no difference some years there's a small difference like in 2020 the average pitching age was 28.3 the average batting age is 28.0 so not a big difference there I think there is maybe some difference in the aging patterns. Mm-hmm. Like it, it seems like pitchers tend to just kind of be at their peak when they come up often and then maybe they decline from there or they throw a little less hard just you know from the beginning of their career almost they start losing some velocity unless they're like Jacob deGrom and they're aging backwards somehow but like at least historically you have tended to expect some kind of curve where like hitters come up and they're not at their peak and then they rise to their peak and then they decline Whereas with pitchers, it, it seems a little bit more like once you come up, you're closer to as good as you're going to get. And then it tails off. And obviously, this is just across the entire population of players. It varies on an individual level. But I think if average is 28 now, I guess you can't say that Castillo is young, right? Like I I tend to think of 28 as, I mean, it's certainly not old, but I, I guess I'd say it's like peak or or prime you know like if it's if it's average then i I guess almost by definition you can't be young relative to other players if you are the age of the average player but you know relative to the average person and to the average baseball fan certainly like i wonder if as you get older you are more likely to refer like does your bar for young for baseball players move because like obviously it does you know for the general population it's like when you hear 
older people will you know refer to kids who right. are <laughs> in themselves maybe older people like when we were talking to Eddie and Betty Robinson and <laughs> Betty was talking about their kids and then she kind of corrected herself to say you know they're they're grown people and right. I don't know how old they are but I would assume based on Eddie and Betty's ages that uh, their kids must be you know well advanced in years they're and most people would not fully call them realized kids. adults <laughs> yes let's yeah. say that so so that changes but does your tendency to call baseball players young change or are they just like all young to you at a certain point I don't know I think that there's also you know some some element of this that is dependent on sort of the the era of of baseball that you found yourself in when you really started to get a sense of the league like we've just mm-hmm. seen a lot of very young very highly touted prospects sort of either make their debuts or be in the mix to soon make their debuts in the last couple of years and i think that that's yeah. sort of ebbed and flowed over time too and so you know if we end up with like wander franco in the big leagues in sort of a similar way that we had juan soto that's going to color our understanding of what the the bottom end of the big league age range is. And I think that that starts to, you know, you get enough of those guys and you're like, wow, like, you know, Wander Franco's only 20 and Juan Soto's only 21 and Fernando Tatis Jr. is only 22 and they are the future. And, you know, Ronald Acuna Jr. is 23. And so you you start to, you know, be more conscious of the, the biggest and brightest stars being objectively young, not just in baseball terms, but in like human being terms. And I think that that can kind of um, color your understanding of where that line is. But like, for instance, Mike Trout, no longer a young star. He's just a star. Mm -hmm. But young does not feel like an appropriate modifier there. So No, it doesn't. He is past the point of being young. Sort of sad, but he is still wonderful. But yeah, I think it does vary by era, not like hugely or dramatically, like, you know, not more than maybe a year or two. But like, if you look at the average age of players, particularly batters of late, it has declined dramatically. And the average batter age in 2019 was 27.9 which is extremely low you know if we're not talking about uh, like a century ago or a half century ago like relative to recent eras that's very well like 27.9 is uh, a full year younger than the average batting age was in 2010 so the average batter fell by a year in age in less than a decade so we are in this era where it seems like the aging patterns have changed somewhat that players are coming up more prepared and are good right away and then they maybe tail off a little sooner it it seems like older players on the whole other than you know Nelson Cruz seem to be struggling a little whereas when we were growing up and watching baseball during the PED era it was the opposite where older players were remaining viable and and great for much longer which is you know there may have been a reason for that perhaps but (laughs) just saying that's kind of what we grew up watching and, and knowing and so yeah I think that probably adjusts a little bit and as you were saying if you're in this era with you know Soto and Acuna well they set the standard for young or Wander Franco or or whoever so if there is like some 20 year old superstar then suddenly maybe it 
seems a little stranger to refer to the 26-year-old superstar as young, even though he's still pretty young. And there just have been some historic years recently, as I've written about, for young hitters being better than they've ever been before. And we would, of course, be remiss if we didn't mention like the labor dynamic that's at play there, where teams are incentivized by the current economic structure of the game to play young cost-controlled players and they are less incentivized to give roster spots to older potentially more expensive guys and so some of the attrition that you see is also a a result of that right that they want to play young homegrown cores that aren't going to cost very much and i imagine that has something to do with how the average age has sorted itself out in the last you know 10 15 years too yep Yep. All right. Well, I guess if we were going to put the number at somewhere, I guess I would say for me, the cutoff, I'd say 26 would be the the upper bound for young, which does not mean that you go from young to old. It just means you go from young to a player I would not necessarily describe as young. Like, And it depends on the context, even. Right. Like, if we're talking about free agency, right? Like, if you're a free agent, well, we just talked about George Springer being 31. Like, if you reach free agency and you're 28 or something, like, well, you're pretty young for a free agent who is uh, good and, and has had that long a career. So within certain contexts, I think you could still call someone young potentially or young for some subset of players. But if I were just generically referring to people, I guess I'd say 26 because like historically 27 has kind of been the prime performance age and maybe it's 26 or maybe it's uh, 28 or maybe there's like a plateau there basically. But 27 is kind of like cited as the magic number there. So if you're at that peak age, then I guess you're not young or you know maybe you're at your peak because you're still young but i'm thinking of it as like you're still on the way up like there's still a good reason to think that you might get even better so for me i guess i'd say 26 and i probably wouldn't switch that up much depending on pitcher versus hitter i would say 27 if only because i want to be difficult and stand up for (laughs) those of us who get sore backs when we sneeze but yeah i think 26 27 is probably the upper end of it i'm going to retract my earlier 28 and say that once you're certainly once you're past 27 you're in that spot where we no longer consider you young but we don't worry that you're going to like suddenly forget how to play baseball yes right okay And one more follow-up to our conversation last week when we did an email episode. We talked about managers getting fired after a single game. We followed up with that on our most recent episode where we talked about the example of Grady Little. There was another one where we talked about Hall of Fame caps and scenarios in which Mookie Betts might go in as a Dodger as opposed to a Red Sox player. I can't quite bring myself to say as a Red Sox. It just sounds wrong to me. I'm sorry. I write around it, and I guess I speak around it if I can. Yeah. (laughs) But we did not specifically mention Wade Boggs, which, uh, again, this is another situation where I was thinking Wade Boggs as we were talking but didn't actually say it. I guess note to selves when we are talking about something that uh, there is some precedent for this and maybe it's such a well-known precedent that it's in our heads and maybe we assume our listeners are thinking of it, but we should probably just acknowledge it. And a couple of people have written in to say, Wade Boggs, surprised you didn't mention Wade Boggs specifically. And yeah, we probably should have. I was thinking about it. 
And we were talking about, well, how does the Hall decide which team a player goes in with? And we talked about how, well, they decide based on kind of the the Hall has a little committee and they look at the body of evidence and the career and then they talk to the player, but usually it's pretty clear. So just reading from Wade Boggs's Wikipedia page, subheading Hall of Fame plaque cap logo controversy. Before his retirement, Boggs was plagued by newspaper reports that the expansion Devil Rays gave him financial compensation in return for selecting a Devil Rays cap for his plaque at the Baseball Hall of Fame, though he has denied that any such condition was part of his contract. In light of those reports and other rumors that teams were offering number retirement money or organizational jobs in exchange for the cap designation, the Hall decided in 2001 to change its practice of deferring to players' wishes regarding cap logo selection and reinforced the Hall's authority to determine with which cap the player would be depicted. Boggs is wearing a Boston cap on his plaque, as he should be. So I think I alluded to that and and mentioned that there had been some controversies about players maybe selling the right rights to their forehead on their plaque or something, but uh, didn't specifically mention Boggs. And that's what I was thinking about. Very dangerous precedent for our readers to say, you should talk more. (laughs) Yeah, probably. (laughs) Speaking of that, we should probably stop talking. So I will end with this stat flash. Should be a pretty quick one. This question is from another Ben or Benjamin who says, and this was a question sent back in mid-September, So I'm a Twins fan, and after homering again tonight, Byron Buxton is up to a 99 weighted runs created plus, despite only having an on-base percentage of 247. That's the Chris Davis batting average number. You do not want that to be your on-base percentage. What's the lowest OBP anyone has carried over a full season while still being a league average hitter? So this is a bit of a lighter lift than the typical stat blast. One can answer this with the Fangrass leaderboards alone and maybe a a little spreadsheet action. So I was not really aware of where Byron Buxton's final stats ended up this season. But boy, that is quite a slash line. So he did it. He pulled it off. He actually ended up being better than this. He finished with a 118 WRC+, so 18% better than the league average hitter. But the OBP was 267, which is very low. So, yeah, yeah, league average this year was 322. 254, 267, 577 was his line. That's uh, that's a weird one. He had 13 home runs in only 135 plate appearances, but he walked 1.5% of the time while striking out about 27% of the time and somehow had a 241 BABIP despite being Byron Buxton and super speedy. So that's just a weird season, but he has had sort of a strange career. <laughs> so happy that he was on the field at all, although yeah. he was on the field for only 39 games. So. Yeah. 
according to Ben's question here, I'm assuming he means over a full season. I would take that to mean qualified for the batting title. So I'm not going to count Byron Buxton here, although it is quite a strange season. (laughs) So he somehow finds ways to be productive if he is on the field, like whether it's that he doesn't hit at all, but he's great at defense, or he doesn't hit for average, doesn't get on base at all, but is good at defense and also hits for a ton of power. Just just strange. I just I hope there is one year where he is fully healthy and awesome and does all the things that he is capable of doing. Although I guess we can't say that he's still young, or at least I can't, because he is uh, about 27 and a half now. So he's right on that border. So I looked this up two different ways, and one was just looking up all players in the modern era, you know, 1900 to present, who have qualified for a batting title over a full season and have had a league average or better 100 or higher WRC plus. And then I just sorted for the lowest on base percentages. So the answer, if we don't do any adjusting for era or anything, is Dave Robertson with the 1917 Giants. And Dave Robertson's line that year was 259, 276, 391. And in that era, he was good for a, a 106 WRC+. plus. He was a, a pretty good hitter and a pretty good player. But that was a time when the league average line was uh, extremely low, obviously. So that would not cut it today. I can just see what the league average line was in 1917 quickly, thanks to David Appleman's wizardry. It was 249, 305, 328. So, yeah, 328 league average slugging percentage in the 1917 NL. So Dave Robertson with his 391 slugging was a big-time power hitter for that era. 12 homers in 560 plate appearances. More recent examples, just sorting the list here. 1966, Fred Whitfield with Cleveland. He had a 102 WRC plus with a 283 OBP. And then 1975, Dave Kingman with the Mets. Dave Kingman's kind of like the classic example of the low OBP slugger. So 115 WRC plus that year, 36 dingers in only 134 games, but a 284 on base. And Joe Pepitone with the 1969 Yankees, sort of similar, 100 WRC plus, 284 on base. 2015, Evan Gaddis with the Astros had a 103 WRC plus and a 285 OBP. Yes. Yeah. Dave Kingman again, 1976 with the Mets, 126 WRC plus with only a 286 on base. That's uh, pretty good. 506 slugging, which was good for that era, 37 homers in 123 games. Then you got Ernie Banks with the Cubs in 1968. Of course, 1968, year of the pitcher. So he had a 123 WRC plus with a 287 on base. And any recent examples, 2011, Alfonso Soriano was a league average hitter with a 289 on base for the Cubs. 2015, Marlon Byrd. 2011, Mark Trumbo. And the other way I looked this up was to adjust for the era. So Fangraphs also has the handy option to look at the plus stats, which Mm -hmm. is uh, just league and era adjusted. So if you want to see what someone was relative to the time period that he played in, you can do that. And it's on the same scale as WRC Plus, where uh, above is better than league average and below is worse than league average. So 
This time I sorted, again, I, I filtered for everyone who had a 100 WRC plus or higher, and then I sorted for the lowest OBP pluses. So by this metric, era adjusted lowest on base for a competent hitter. Dave Kingman takes the cake, 1975 Kingman season with the Mets. He had, uh, relative to the league, an 85 OBP plus with his 115 WRC plus. So that's the top. And then 1957 Gus Zerniel had a 86 OBP plus with a 101 WRC plus. And then some of the others show up again, 1969 Pepitone, 1976 Dave Kingman, 70 and 74 Lee May. And then you get to Dave Robertson in 1917 again. And then you get to Mike Jacobs in 2008 with the Marlins, 2003 Jeremy Burnitz, 2000 Tony Batista, Evan Gaddis again. So some low on base sluggers from the past couple decades showing up there too. Soriano, Pedro Feliz, 2004, Mark Trumbo, Joe Carter, etc. So. Thanks for the question. You can get the answer to that question and many other burning questions <laughs> in the free leaderboards at Fangraphs, which, of course, you should support by buying a membership. Aw, Ben, thanks. Was <laughs> yeah. that Evan Gaddis season the year that he weirdly had like more than 10 triples? Oh, was it? Let's see. What this year was, was it? The, this was the 2015. Yeah. Gadd- yeah. <laughs> okay. 11 triples, 11 Evan Gaddis. Yep. That was a weird one. <laughs> Remains one of the best. That, Ben, that's a fun fact. Yeah, it definitely is. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we have come to the end of this one. So that will do it. And if you don't hear us again before Christmas and you are celebrating Christmas, we hope you have a happy one. And I hope you have a happy one. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, I hope everybody has a Merry Christmas if they celebrate and a restful couple days off regardless. And uh, yeah, we'll be back next week. All right, that will do it for today. And indeed, that will do it for me and Meg this week. Although I will be back with one more solo episode. Not exactly solo. It won't just be a monologue. I'll get guests. You know how that works. I think it'll be fun. A brief addendum slash secondary stat blast because I just got an email about this as I was about to post this episode. On our last episode when we talked about the Phillies promoting Sam Fold to GM, I mentioned that he has a really extensive Wikipedia page. I just casually threw it out there. Hey, if you find any players who have longer Wikipedia pages, than Sam Fold, let us know. Well, we have a lot of smart and talented and resourceful listeners, and one of them is a prolific Wikipedia editor who goes by Addison, and he ran a SQL query to look up the longest Wikipedia articles on MLB players or former players. He was able to search by the number of bytes on the Wikipedia page, which is obviously correlated with the word count, though not perfectly so. That can be influenced by things like tables, for instance. But he sent me a list of the top 100 by byte size, which I will link to on the show page here and then he manually looked up the word count for the top 50 on that top 100 list and so i can say that sam fold's wikipedia page is indeed extraordinarily long but it is not anywhere close to the record nor is it even the record for semi-obscure players in the grand scheme of things so fold ranks 32nd by bite size and then when addison looked up the word counts for the top 50 sam fold ranked 44th so still pretty impressive but there are some even odder ones above him on the list so the top 10 by word count are 
are at least well-known famous players, mostly Hall of Famers or perhaps future Hall of Famers. So Sam Fold's Wikipedia page has just under 6,000 words. Babe Ruth leads the list with a little more than 15,000. Then it goes Billy Martin, Casey Stengel, Alex Rodriguez, Tony Gwynn, Mariano Rivera, Satchel Paige, Yadier Molina, Larry Walker, and Ted Williams. Okay, maybe some players you wouldn't have predicted on there, but big names. In the top 20, you have Jeff Bagwell, you have Jackie Robinson, you have Willie Mays, you have Ichiro, you have Derek Jeter. Okay, all makes sense. But here are some weird ones. Ian Kinsler, number 22, a little more than 8,000 words. Very good player, but probably not a player about whom there is more to write than all but 21 players in history. Now here's one. Number 23, Cal Ripken Jr., okay. Number 25, Trevor Hoffman, sure. Sandwiched between them, number 24, Stephen Vogt. Stephen Vogt has an 8,000-word Wikipedia page with 332 citations. Your guess is as good as mine on that one. Now, here we are from number 30 on down. David Ortiz, Ty Cobb, Clayton Kershaw, Stan Musial, Manny Ramirez, Barry Zito, and then at 36, just above Mickey Mantle, Chris Young, the pitcher, whom we just talked about in that same conversation as Sam Fold. So the two new ex-player GMs have another thing in common, which is that they have enormous Wikipedia pages. Stephen Matz is just ahead of Sam Fold. And guess who ranks right behind Stephen Matz and Sam Fold? Mike Trout, naturally. Anyway, this is what you get with a crowdsourced encyclopedia. A lot of great information on a lot of great players, and also a lot of information on Stephen Vogt. So thanks to Addison for the answers, and please do go check out the full list, because it will make you do some double takes. Okay, well, I don't know when people will be listening to this, but I hope that you will have, or have had, or are having a happy holidays. And we thank those of you who continue to support Effectively Wild on Patreon. That is a great gift that you give us. Following five listeners have have already signed up and pledged some small amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Brian Bardolph, Matt Johnson, John Seroff, Kendall Johnson, and Benji Englander. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Meg coming via email at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance, and you can look out for another episode in your feed sometime soon. Talk to you then. I got my dancing shoes They clash with